We have started this new series in the letters of Peter, First Peter and Second Peter will probably, as I said last week, Lord willing, probably be in these letters the remainder of this year, except for a few weeks here or there. I want to start back where, where I began early this morning uh, at the beginning of the service with this exhortation to the church in verse 3 that Peter gives. Remember, he is writing this letter to the church that is dispersed throughout all of these regions in Asia Minor, what is today modern-day Turkey. And these congregations of people that are reading this letter as it's being sent around and copied and given to these different locations. And he has given his greeting, his introduction, and now he says to them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His exhortation to the church right from the beginning is church. God is worthy of praise. If you have a worship guide this morning, we'll be going through the outline together. This is a people perhaps that are reading this that are already worn down from discouragement. We talked last week about how there is persecution that is beginning to happen against the church of that day and that time. And they are on the very cusp of one of the great persecutions that happens to the Christians in, in Rome from the Emperor Nero. And so perhaps some of them are already worn down by discouragement that comes from persecution, or maybe they're just worn down by life in general. I mean, these were people with families. They had problems just like we do today. They had issues in raising their children. They had marriage struggles. They had financial worries. They went through these things that we go through. So perhaps they're discouraged, or maybe they're prosperous. Maybe they're not distracted by discouraged hearts. Maybe they're distracted by prosperity. Maybe everything's going really well in their life. And it is as Jesus said it would be that sometimes the Word of God or the things of God will be choked out by the cares and the pleasures of this life. And either way, Peter opens this letter to them. Church, He is worthy of your praise. Set your heart on God. Praise Him. Pursue Him. He is worthy of your praise. And then Peter is going to begin to give them some reasons for them to praise Him. We might ask that sometimes, right? If we're honest with ourselves. We know this is true. We should praise God. But sometimes, if we're honest, we find ourselves in places where we say, well, why? Though, Why should I praise God now? Look, Is He even listening to me? Has He seen my life? Does He know what's going on? Why What should I praise Him? And what we're going to see this morning is the power of God's Word. Why we should seek Him through His Word. Because Peter is going to begin to tell us right away, here is why you are to praise God. And it's not because He's meeting all your needs. It's not because He's making you prosperous. It's not even because He's going to spare you from every persecution or trial. It is because of what He has done. What He has done for you and what He has accomplished for you in Jesus. And so as we go into this this morning, I want to ask you if you'll do something. If you are in this room today or if you're on live stream and you're a believer, you would say, I know Christ, I'm walking with Christ. Would you 
pray to be exhorted through this Word today to meditate on what He has already done for you and what you have received in salvation and allow that to draw out of you great affection. Pray that it would draw out of you great affection for God. If you're not a believer this morning, or if you're wandering, if you know you're far from God the way I was when I walked in the doors of this church 18 years ago, that's exactly what I would have said had I heard a pastor say that. Wandering. Would you consider what Peter puts before us? Would you consider the benefits of what has happened in Christ? Would you know that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? These things will be theirs. And would you allow that to draw your heart to Him and salvation? Why do we praise God? Why is He worthy of our praise? Peter said, because He has given us spiritual life which is characterized by a growing expectation. He has given us spiritual life, which is characterized by a growing expectation. In verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again. That is one word in the Greek. He has caused us to be born again. One word. Actually, a word that Peter kind of coins himself. The exact word You only find one other place in the New Testament, and Peter uses it later in this letter. He takes a root word that the people would have been familiar with, which meant to father a child or to give birth to a child. That's the root word he uses, and then he he adds to it to coin a new word, which most literally means, He has born us again. He has fathered us to new life. And the new life he's talking about is the new spiritual life that Jesus gives us. If you remember, went through the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. You remember this encounter Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus, a ruling Pharisee. Nicodemus went and met with Jesus at night because he was very interested in Jesus. He was drawn to Jesus, but he didn't want anyone to know he was meeting with Jesus. And in that conversation, Jesus says to Nicodemus, to this great Pharisee who knows the Word of God, who is called a teacher of teachers among the Jewish people on that day, and Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And it's a slightly different word that John uses there, but there it means to be born anew or to be born from above. So Peter is pointing us to this life that is in us when we're believers that we can't create. Only God can create this life. You would never be able to obey enough to create this life. You would never be able to believe enough. You would never be able to do anything to create this life in you. You might in this, in this life on this earth be able to discipline yourself enough to form some new habits, maybe change your life around financially or physically. And we sometimes kind of get in that mindset that if I just work hard enough and do enough that I can change things. Maybe that's true to an extent in this life, but this we cannot change. There is nothing you could ever do 
to have this spiritual life inside of you. It is a work of God the Father. What did we read this morning in Revelation? Those 24 elders, those 24 elders on the 24 thrones around the throne of God, and at one point they take their crowns, obviously given to them by God, and they cast them at the throne. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And Peter is pointing us to part of the all things God has created by His will is new spiritual life in us. It doesn't come from the works or the energy or the mind of man. It comes only from God the Father. So praise Him for that. If you're a believer, He's done something in you that you could have never done in yourself. So praise Him for that. All the days of your life, if you're not a believer, pursue this and ask Him for it to save you, that He would do this work in you and then praise Him for it. And this spiritual life will be characterized in a certain way by a growing expectation. Peter calls it a living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When you and I think of hope, sometimes we think of it's, it's wishful thinking. Now, I, I hope to be able to go there one day and do this. I hope to be able to meet that person one day and shake their hand. I hope to have this one day. It's kind of wishful thinking. That's not the kind of hope that's being talked about here. What Peter is talking about is not wishful thinking. It is a spiritual life that is characterized by an eager, living, confident, growing expectation. If something is alive, it grows until it reaches maturity. And this growing expectation in us as believers grows and grows and grows and grows. As a matter of fact, the older we get and the more our bodies wear down, the more this expectation will grow in us. It's this part of life that just keeps getting better, this eager expectation of what God is doing. It's strengthening year by year until one day we see Him. What are we expecting? What is the expectation that we have? We're going to talk about it more in detail in a moment because Peter's going to explain it to us. But in part, we can say that it is our expectation to be with God. And that God is with us. And the longer you're a Christian, the more you should grow in that. The more you should grow in confidence that God is with me. That God draws me in. That He is walking with me. He is speaking to me. He is showing me things in His Word. He is with me. This is the expected result of being born again. Church, listen, we have been inundated by this... Mindset. I hope not here, I don't believe here, but in Christianity in America that being born again or getting saved is something you do, you go do that. Oh yeah, I've done that. I've been saved. So I've, I've got saved now. I can check that off my list and I don't have to worry now about going to hell and now I, you know, I'm safe and secure in that. And it's what, what lacks in many of our gospel presentations in America today is the expected life change that comes from being born again. 
Jesus doesn't call us to come to Himself and He'll just make things better and He'll tweak a few things here or there. He comes to us and says, I'm going to totally overhaul everything. It's not going to be the same. You're going to think differently. You're going to feel differently. You're going to see the world differently. I'm going to change it all. And pick up your cross and follow me. And the result of being born again is the more that we grow spiritually, the more we are eager for that to happen. The more we want to be like Jesus. The more we want to see Him instead of our flesh. The more we want to be like Him in character and how He dealt with people. Do you ever read the Gospels and just see how Jesus interacted with people and said, I I really want to be able to do that. I, I want to know when I need to be stern with someone graciously, but stern in truth. But I also want to know when I need to just be compassionate to someone in truth. Part of being born again is this expectation that we can be like Jesus more as we grow. And Peter says, praise God because this has already been accomplished for you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is not just something to come, although it is to come, but it is something that you can experience right now. It's yours because He's already accomplished it. Think about who's writing this letter. Remember, we talked about it last week. The resurrection changed everything for Peter. Before the resurrection, what he knew was a denial of Jesus. The last time that he saw Jesus... The last time that he was near Jesus, when Jesus was alive, he was denying that he ever even knew him. And then Jesus went to the cross and was murdered. Imagine your last words to someone. Maybe we've had that experience, being words that we wish were quite different. Before the cross, it was denial and death. But then, then, that resurrection morning, when he heard that the body was gone and he runs to the tomb, And he's excited, but he doesn't know if he yet believes. But then later that day, in an encounter that we're really not even told about in detail, Jesus goes and meets with him privately after the resurrection. It was life and restoration. And Peter is saying to the church, that's what the resurrection has done for you. In giving life to Jesus from the dead, the Father gives new life to anyone that is united to Jesus. Anyone who belongs to Jesus gets the newness of life that Jesus has in the resurrection. So church, praise Him for that. That's what Peter's saying. Praise Him that you're born again. Praise Him that you have a living, eager expectation and hope because He is making all things new. And Peter tells them that It is God's mercy that is the decisive reason that this has happened. His mercy is the decisive reason that we have this living hope. Look at what he said in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's the same term we saw last week in verse 2. Remember that? Teaching, 
He writes and says, Church, you are elect exiles. You are chosen resident aliens scattered throughout the earth in the times and the places that I have positioned you in. All of this has happened according to or because of the foreknowledge of God, because I have foreknown you. And now here, same terminology. You are born again for no other reason apart from the mercy of God. Why? Why me? Why am I saved? Why have I come to know Christ? Why have I believed in Him? The whole world rejects Him and walks away. Why do I have newness of life? And the Bible gives us no place to point back to ourselves. It's not because of our works. It's not because of the home that we grew up in, although that can be a help. It's not because we accomplished something. It's not because we're smarter than other people. It's not because we're more enlightened than other people. The Bible gives us one reason. God was merciful to you. There's no bragging here. Church, this should absolutely change the way we look at the lost. Our evangelism should always reflect this humble estate. I'm not better than anyone. The ungodly that are doing ungodly things, I'm not better than them. I've received the mercy of Christ, so God, would you please have mercy on them as you've had mercy on me? We've all felt, we've all felt the pull of arrogance toward those who aren't believers. We get angry at non-believers for doing non-believer type things. And the Bible says, the only reason you're not where they are is because of the mercy of God. So praise Him for that. Praise Him for what He has done. Praise Him for the mercy that He has given you. Praise Him next, because He has reserved for you a share of the new creation. He has reserved for you a share of the new creation. Peter continues in verse 4, You have been born again, right? According to His great mercy, He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to or into an inheritance. You have been born again into an inheritance. I've said this before, when, when we adopted Jack, Jack was adopted into the inheritance of our family. And all that I will one day leave my children, Jack will have a share of that. He will be very disappointed in that inheritance, but yet it will, it will be his. He has been adopted into that. You and I, when we're adopted by God through faith in Jesus, because He's caused us to be born again, we receive an inheritance that was Christ, but He shares now with us. Remember last week how we talked about in the Old Testament, the people of God were taking their pilgrimage through the wilderness, waiting for the promised holy land. and It was often called their inheritance, and they were sustained in the wilderness by the hope of this promised land and the share that they would have in it. And the share was their allotted portion. Each tribe and each family would be given part of that promised land. 
In the New Testament, we are also resident aliens and we're making a pilgrimage and we are sustained by the promise of our share in the promised land. But today, it is not a city. It is not a square of land. It's not essential. It is not only a city. It is a heavenly city, but it's not only a city or only a square of land, but it is all that God has for us. And we have been promised a share in this kingdom of God to come. And the most notable part of the inheritance is God Himself. Because the psalmist said that, you are my portion. You are my inheritance. You are my share. So we are moving toward that. That is our hope that sustains us. Colossians 3.24 says that part of your inheritance is the reward that you receive from God for this life and even your obedience in it. And so Peter is holding that out. He has reserved for you a share of the new creation, which will never depreciate. Sorry for complicated words. But this word was on my mind this week. This is an inheritance which will never depreciate. I was, I've been talking to my kids about buying vehicles and I was sharing with them like my personal choices. I don't buy new, new cars, like brand new. And so one of them was, they were asking, well, why? And I said, because like the moment you drive it off the lot, like it's lost value. Like you could drive it off the lot, go down the road five minutes, sell it again, not be able to sell it for what you just paid for it. This inheritance never depreciates. Peter says, verse 4, it is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You and I know nothing in this life like this inheritance. Because everything of value in our life somehow fades with the passage of time. It doesn't matter if we value our health, if we value money, we value our home, if we value a vehicle, if we value the most secure commodity you could think of in this life, with time, it will fade. It will perish. It's not perfect. This inheritance, nothing like that. It will never depreciate. It does not fade. It is why it is so foolish for us as the church to live only for the things that we can see rather than to live into this kingdom and this inheritance that can never fade. Jesus said that. He said, don't don't just live your life to collect as many earthly crowns as you can. Live your life to collect crowns in heaven, rewards in heaven. We're not saved by what we do, but what we do, according to Scripture, does result in rewards. And Jesus laid that before the church and said, live for those things. They can never depreciate. And this inheritance that never depreciates, you can partially experience right now. This inheritance you can partially experience even right now. That's why Peter says you are born into an inheritance, born again into an inheritance. There is a way in which you can partially enjoy today in the present your share in the kingdom of God. God lets, lets us experience that. In the past couple of weeks, God has just, by His grace, let me and several people here experience being a part of some miracles that He worked. Spiritual miracles. 
And when He does that, when you're involved in someone's life and He's working in their life, you get to experience and be a part of that. You get to, you get to share in it. He allots to His church spiritual gifts. You receive a spiritual gift that is just for the purpose of serving the church. When you receive that, you get to participate in your share of the kingdom partially right now. Jesus told the disciples that in Luke 10. When you enter a town, heal people and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. He didn't say tell them that Okay, they now live completely fully in the kingdom of God. He said, no, tell them that the kingdom of God has come near in a partial way. This inheritance for us, we can partially experience right now. And it is kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice Peter started out talking in the plural. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. He shifts here. You have an inheritance kept for you. He makes it personal. That's why I bolded that word in your outline. God has reserved this inheritance for you, and He continues to reserve it. You know, like at my house, one of my children, and I won't name who it is, but they will sometimes buy food or they will have food bought for them. And then when they go to put it up, they will write their name on it in the refrigerator or the pantry. That is a way that they can remind people, this doesn't belong to you, this belongs to me. And, and it is because there is a very real fear that someone else might take it. Probably their father because I pretty much claim everything. But anyway, we treat inheritances like that. We treat what we want to be ours later with fear that it might not be. And Peter says, don't worry about that. Your inheritance is reserved and kept for you by your Father in heaven. It will be yours when you see Him. So praise Him. Praise Him for that. Praise Him, church, that you have an inheritance no one can ever take from you, that He is reserved for you and He is keeping for you. In the Old Testament, their inheritance was lost due to sin. Some of them never experienced it on the earth. Others they got to experience, but then they were exiled. But this share can never be taken from you. No one can take it from you. Not even your own sin. How do you know that? Because look what he says next. He secures us from danger within and without until the time of our full possession. God secures us from danger within and danger without until the time of our full possession. Okay, the inheritance is secured. Alright, it's there. No one's going to take it. But how do I know I'm going to actually be able to enjoy it? Verse 5, Peter says, Who by God's power... He's talking about the church. Who by God's power 
are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Guarded, that word guarded that Peter uses is a military term. It means to carefully watch something and keep it under guard. Now notice, what is being carefully watched and kept under guard? Not the inheritance. That was verse 4. What's being carefully watched and kept under guard in verse 5? You. You, the believer. You are being carefully watched and kept under guard. Who is keeping you under guard? Your father. If you're a parent in this room, you know how this works. Especially when your kids are little, you secure them. You carefully watch them. You keep them under guard. How do you do that? Two ways. One, you put parameters around them so they can't wander into danger. Now, your house, especially with your first child, is filled with baby gates. Now, with your second, third, fourth, fifth, if you're like a sixth child, you don't wonder about, you don't worry about it quite as much. They'll learn about stairs if they fall a few times. It's okay. But, (laughs) but God, God guards us in that way. But you also guard people, you guard your kids from danger getting to them. God our Father secures us in this way. This is a very clear promise, church, that God preserves His people until the day the inheritance is theirs. He preserves them. He guards them. Look at the language. Look at the wording. The inheritance is kept and He's guarding you. And sometimes He's guarding you from yourself. It doesn't mean that He doesn't allow you to sin. It doesn't mean that you're perfect in this life. It does mean for those who are truly His, they will not wander beyond the place where this inheritance will be theirs. Will I make it to my share? What if I get persecuted? What if Nero comes? What if, what if, what if he comes for me? What if he comes for my family? What if I get overwhelmed? What if I get distracted? And Peter says, by God's power, you will be guarded. You will be kept by His power. So look to Him and praise Him. Praise Him, church. Why? Because He guards you. And so that we don't think He just puts us in a cage and makes us into robots and that this guarding doesn't look like anything in our life, Peter tells us His means of keeping us is faith. The means by which He keeps us is faith. Look at what he says. Verse 5, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Through faith means faith is the means in which God preserves you. Faith is the means in which God guards your life. Is it works that you're guarded by? No, it's faith. Is it me coming up with more faith on my own? No, that would be a work. It's the gift of faith from God that He causes you to persevere. Faith is not an achievement any more than anything else in the Christian life is. We are people of little faith. That is why we are people that can pray for more faith. We can pray for God to increase our faith. And as we pray for God to increase our faith, we're praying for God to increase the thing that perseveres us in Him. God empowers us through faith. And let me just address this and say that I know... In the church, even among 
Baptists, there are, there are objections to the doctrine of perseverance. And one of the main objections to that doctrine is that if you teach people that, that, that you're preserved, that that'll lead them to sin. That that'll give them the freedom to sin. If you teach them that once they're gods, they'll always be gods, then they'll, once they belong to God, they'll always belong to God, then that'll just lead them to sin. No, that's not true at all, because faith is what is guarding us, and faith always leads to obedience. James says that. Faith without works is dead. It's not actually faith. A live faith leads to obedience. The more faith we have, the more we'll obey. And so Peter gets to verse 6, and he says, Church, in this you rejoice. What is the this? This is everything He's just described for us. In all of this, that God has caused you to be born again. He's given you spiritual life. He is growing your expectation of Him. Because of His mercy, He has reserved for you a share of the new creation, which can never depreciate, which you can experience now a little bit, but in fullness one day. He has secured you. He's keeping that inheritance for you. And He is securing you so that you one day have the inheritance. And His means of doing that is faith. Church, rejoice in all of this. So this life truth that I want to give us. One evidence of true salvation is that you continually rejoice in what God has done for you. One evidence of true salvation is that you continually rejoice in what God has done for you. When he says in verse 6, in this you rejoice, I don't think that's a command. I think that is his expected experience that a believer will have. Church, Peter writes, I don't even know all of you. Maybe he's never met any of them. We talked about that last week. We aren't sure. But here's what he says, I know about you. You're rejoicing in your salvation. In this you do rejoice. How can you say that? Because of what we've talked about before. You and I naturally rejoice in what we love. You and I rejoice in what we love. And we don't just rejoice in it, we invite others to come and participate in it with us. Right? You see a good movie, good show, you eat at a good restaurant, you experience something good, you go tell people about it. You might even take them with you. You might even buy their dinner there because you want them to experience what you did because that completes your joy, seeing the joy in them. And no one has to force you to do that. No one tells you to do that. When you and I rejoice in the gospel, people will know it and we will invite people. We will want people to come be a part of it. Because a deep spiritual joy arises in us when we ponder all that God has done for us. And here's the problem. Sometimes we just get so tunneled vision on what He is doing or not doing in the natural. He's met some needs. I'm not seeing breakthrough over here. I'm praying about this thing. Finances, job, relationships. Like we get really focused. God wants us to pray about those things. I do believe God changes those things. But church, in the Old Testament, God's salvation was not just His deliverance from trouble in Egypt. It was bringing people to Himself. 
In the New Testament, salvation is not just what God is saving us from in this fallen world. It is about what He is saving us to, which is a relationship with Him. If, church, our joy in God is dictated by our experiences by our natural day-to-day occurrences, then I think it's a good sign that we're not rejoicing in what He has done for us on the cross and been accomplished in it. Either because we don't meditate on it enough or because we don't yet value it enough. The Gospels of the world, the Christian Gospels that teach that salvation is all about God making our natural lives better. It's an ungodly gospel. Does God give breakthrough in earthly things? Absolutely. I think He still heals. I believe He still asks us to call out to Him about all of our lives. But the gospel is about the joy of being made new in Christ. So, one evidence of true salvation is you continually rejoice in God's work for you even when grief arises. Even when grief arises, in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So Peter says to them, This joy is yours even though you experience difficult times. In trials, you go through grief. You go through sorrow. You go through pain. The anticipation here is that your rejoicing in God will not be undone by a trial. Because the joy of what God has done is still yours. It is still lifting you up even in the middle of a distressing day or a distressing week or a distressing season. That joy for what God has done helps you keep perspective. It helps you to see clearly and think clearly. This is not just joy that comes from suffering. This is joy that is produced by salvation that is constant even when you are suffering. Joy and grief are normative experiences in the Christian life. Joy and grief are normative experiences in the Christian life. Peter's going to tell us that in chapter 4. We'll get there in a few months. He says, look, don't think something strange is happening to you when a trial comes. Don't question God's faithfulness to you when a trial comes. Don't question God's love for you when a trial comes. Every person will be grieved, he says here, by various trials. And that tells us that although much of this letter he's talking about trials that comes from persecution for being a Christian, here he's just giving us general principles for any trial we face, various trials. You're going to have joy, constant from your salvation, and you're going to have times of grief. And for those abiding in Christ, grief will never overcome joy. For those abiding in Christ, grief will never overcome joy. What I mean by this is that distress 
in a day, in a week, in a season, distress, it may overwhelm you. It may get your eyes off of Jesus. But it can never overcome you. It will never be your undoing. It's one reason you need a community. It's one reason you need a church. It's one reason you need brothers and sisters who lift you up and remind you of the promises of God. It's one reason you need corporate worship. Because sometimes we just got to get our eyes back on Jesus. We won't be overcome by trials. If a trial, if a normative experience of your life, if the pattern of your life is that whenever a trial comes, you run from God and you cast aside all the joy for the things that He's done for you, it is a sign you're not abiding in Christ. Because Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in Me, these things I have spoken to you, I have done so that My joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Abiding brings joy. We will have days where we will struggle in our faith. We'll have days where we'll struggle in questioning God. But we won't be overcome by those things. And if your life is characterized by casting God aside and casting joy aside and not even being able to thank Him for the things that He has done in the midst of trials, then there's a spiritual issue that you need to run to Christ and ask Him to heal because those abiding in Jesus' grief grief will never overcome joy with finality. Godly trials come only as necessary to His purposes for you. These godly trials come only as necessary to His purposes for you. Look again in verse 6. In this, all these things, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. He says that we're grieved by trials if it must be so. We are grieved by trials if necessary. I believe how I interpret this and what I believe this is teaching is He is pointing us to God's sovereignty even over our trials. If it must be so in God's eyes, if God deems it so, you will go through various trials. The ungodly, Peter's going to tell us in chapter 4, the ungodly suffer from ungodliness. And he tells the church that. Don't suffer because you're a murderer. Don't suffer because you're a meddler. But then he tells us even Christians will suffer. Even living godly lives, you will suffer. And what I think Peter is saying here is that God does not allow a trial without a reason. If God has allowed a trial in your life, it is for a purpose. And that may have been vitally important for this group of people to hear who had been chosen to live in that day, in that region, in that time under Nero. And Peter would have known this from first-hand experience. Because before he ever denied Jesus, in Luke 22... Jesus looked at Peter and said, Simon, I need you to know something. Satan has asked to have you. He's demanded that I allow a trial. That he might sift you like wheat. And I've prayed for you 
that when this happens, your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus was telling him, Satan has asked permission to do something. I have granted it. I have prayed you will not fail. And when you have been restored, use the trial you've been through to strengthen the church. And that's what Peter did. That's what he's doing in this letter. Trials come at different times. They come for a little while. And God has allowed them for His purposes. And I know that that may strain some of our theology. I've met good Christian brothers who just believe every bad thing that comes into our life, it is, it is from the enemy. And, and listen, that's not untrue. But I think the Bible shows us that as we're being guarded, everything that comes into the life of His children has to go through the filter of God's permission. And I realize it may be a strain to ask, why has God let me go through this trial? But could I comfort you this morning that you have a loving Father who knows what you need and what is best for you? That your trials are not circumstance, they are not happenstance. They are within His purview of your life. It is why it is so damaging and disruptive for us to compare trials. To assume we're the only people that are facing them, but then to compare them. And to say, well, that person isn't facing what I'm facing, or they haven't went through this. Every Christian is facing trials that God is allowing for their, for His purposes in their life. So lift each other up in your trials. Don't compare and contrast. These trials purify the faith that God uses to keep you secure. Look at verse 7. He tells us, why do these trials come? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Why do trials come to refine your faith? The Greek word there it means to prove your faith, to prove it genuine. It was often used in relation to refining metal, heating up metal so the impurities would come up and they could be wiped away. Peter even compares it to gold. Gold is universally renowned as a precious metal. And Peter says, gold, gold is tested, gold is refined, but yet it will one day still perish but your tested faith will never perish. Your genuine faith that God has brought out through trials, it will never perish. Trials strip us of self. They drive us to Jesus and they create in us a more pure faith and a more pure trust in Him. Faith is strengthened in trials and it is that faith that keeps us persevering. It is possible that there are trials that God has allowed to come in your life for the purpose of keeping you in the faith. Maybe had God not let that trial come, you would have wandered. You would have left. He let that trial come to drive you to Him. 
And church, know this, tested faith is precious to God. And it will result in great reward. I know we filled in the last blank, but I want you to see this. Look at how he ends this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. I want to ask you a question. Whose praise, whose glory, whose honor? Immediately, our church Sunday school answer is God's. And that is right, but I don't think that's what he means there. I think he's talking about the praise, the glory, the honor that God will give the one who has had their faith tested and been proven genuine. Peter's going to tell us later in chapter 5, talking about church leaders, but we know this applies to all the church. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Rewards and crowns are throughout Scripture. I think the times where we have went through great trials and we have continued to trust God and to look to Him and pursue Him and praise Him and rejoice in Him, when we have went through times of trials and God has walked side by side with us, when we have went through those trials, God finds our tested faith to be precious to Him. And one day He will reward it. He will reward you for everything that you have went through where you kept faith. Many people feel defined by their trials. They feel defined by their imperfections. They ask, God, why did you make me this way? Or God, why did you allow this to happen? We feel ridiculed or sorrowful or we're seen less in the world, but God alone decides what's precious. God alone decides what's valuable. And God says, a tested faith and trusting in me in spite of your trials is precious to me. And at the revelation of Jesus, many will get their rewards for trusting in Him through their trials. We may not even understand the reason for those trials until that day. But on that day we will. And what are you and I going to do with those rewards? What are we going to do with the crowns that He gives us? Will we not take them off and lay them at the feet of Jesus? Will we not do what those elders did? Will we not look to Christ and say, but it was all about you? It was all about your resurrection power. It was all about what you were doing. You were the one keeping me in faith. You were the one empowering my belief. You were the one causing me to trust. This crown is yours. And Sam, you guys can come up. We're going to end where we started in the sermon. God is worthy of praise. He is worthy of our praise for what He has done in our salvation. And the trials of life can never undo that. If you guys will bring the lights down, we're going to end today in worship. We want to respond to God's Word. This is not just the thing we do to just get ready to be dismissed. We want to respond to God's Word. He's calling us to rejoice, to praise Him,
And so that's what we want to do. As we sing this last song, I want to ask you to join your voices from your heart in worship. I also want to offer the opportunity to respond to God's Word by being prayed for. I want to ask if um, Kevin and the baby can come up. Are you <laughs> good? I looked at him right as he was being handed his daughter. Rob, can you come up? We're going to have some leaders over here to my left. If you want to be prayed for about anything, you can come and, and we'll pray for you. We will come and you come and, and anything at all. If you want to pray about something that needs to be made new, you want to pray if, there's, if you're sick, if there's a healing that you're seeking, if you need newness in any sphere of your life, we'll, we'll pray for you about that. But certainly, we want to consider our walk with the Lord. If today you have never come to know Christ, if today this salvation that has been described, you would say, I don't have joy in Jesus this way, would you follow Him? There's not a particular prayer you have to pray. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus to be saved will be saved. Would you call on Him today? I'm not asking if you've been in church your whole life. I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you know the Bible. I'm asking, will you follow Jesus? And if today you want to follow Jesus, would you let us know that? I'm not going to call you down. I'm not going to introduce you and embarrass you. But would you just, before you leave, even right now, would you just come and just talk to us and let us pray for you? If you want to see your faith strengthened, if you're wandering, we'll pray for you. Follow Jesus. Be baptized in obedience to Him for the forgiveness of your sins and grow. Grow in Christ. Grow in joy. Grow in life in Christ. We don't baptize people because it saves them, we baptize people to show what God has done. If you're not being prayed for, if you're not praying, would you, if you're willing and able to stand, please do so. Let us lift our voices. Let us worship. Let us cry out to God. Let us sing praises to Him from our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you that you have accomplished salvation. Thank You, God, for the resurrection. Thank You that if we're united to Christ, we have new life. God, would You please save souls today. In this room, on live stream, would You please save souls. Would You please bring us to Christ. Would You please bring us back from our wandering. Would You please give us joy. If we are following You but we don't have joy, would You grant us joy today. In Your name, we need You. Amen.